Thursday, July 8th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Mr. Asa Charma. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. And thank you for the honorific of Mr. Makes it, <laughs> makes me sound like some kind of authority. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're a grown-up. You're an authority. You're an expert. Finally. Uh, uh, it's we're going to some time yeah, for all of us. Um, we're going to talk ETFs. We're going to talk about. We're absolutely going to talk about the lawsuit against Google. Um, but but let's start sort of big picture because this. I was saying to you earlier today. This 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 is one of those days when the lead story on Wall Street is fear, and I'm not saying it's unwarranted. There, you know, you got some cases where, uh, you know, some countries where COVID cases are rising. There are. That's certainly true in, in certain parts of the United States. We got the latest jobless claims data from the Labor Department. That was higher than expected. Throw in the fact that Japan has declared a state of emergency around the Olympics. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not transacting off of this fear, but I understand why this is the case today. Yes. I mean, crazy to think, Chris. Yesterday, I think the Dow had a record close. You know, and here we, we are, we wake up this morning, things are completely different. Part of this is a larger conversation that investors are having as they look into the mirror, which is what does normalcy look like? Normalcy for the markets, normalcy for the global economy. You know, we've got this target for the U.S. Our economic growth this year is supposed to be somewhere between 65 and 7%. That's real growth in GDP coming off of COVID. And when we hear things about potential slowdowns in global growth, the Delta variant figuring into that, the fact that uh, the 10-year Treasury dropped to about 1.29% uh, yesterday, which is signaling that maybe growth expectations are slowing down, you, you take all that together and investors start to second guess these record highs and the fact that the market has been relatively healthy. I have no idea what normalcy looks like, but I know that jolts like this are going to get us to, to an understanding of what, what that is uh, over the next few months. Well, it, it also makes me think of um, you know something Tom Gardner has said for a long time, which is one of the best ways for investors to increase uh, their holdings and sort of increase their chances that their investments are going to pay off, double your time horizon. If you right. have the ability yeah. to think in terms of decades, you know, or even years instead of weeks and months, as a lot of professional traders on Wall Street do, that's going to be to your advantage. And the, you know, again, I understand. I'm, I'm not saying any of the, the things I mentioned at the top of the show aren't real, um, but it does strike me as one of those things that if you have a long time horizon as an investor. Then hopefully you're less afraid today. <laughs> well, it certainly makes it easier to keep investing, right? It is a little uh, scary to see markets at all-time highs and so much uncertainty in the air. But if you expand that time horizon out, it gives you some room to to be okay with the volatility, to be okay with the fact that the market. Uh, really doesn't affect what you're doing on the ground as an investor, which is trying to find great companies with long growth horizons that are out there innovating in that global economy and are going to rise over time independent of what the short-term market sentiment reflects. And 
you mentioned the the market hit, you know, the Dow hitting a new high yesterday. Um, I, I think if not yesterday, then earlier in the week or within the past week, both the S and P 500 and the Nasdaq have hit new highs. And you know, what's the Buffett line? It's you know, when the tide goes out, then you see who's been swimming naked. Like I feel, I feel like a corollary is when the market hits new highs, then you find out who are the people in your life whose income depends on you transacting. Because that's when the drumbeat gets a little bit louder from people who are saying, oh, take some money off the table. You know, do that. NASDAQ in a new high, you know, cut, you know, take some of that money you've been making off of big tech stocks and, and put it to work somewhere else or put it in cash. So true, Chris. And those folks, their time to make hay is, is days like this. Our time to make hay as investors, slow and steady, try to tune those voices out. <laughs> Apple has caught a lot of heat lately for how it runs its app store. And uh, I guess the silver lining here is that now Apple has company because the attorneys general of 36 states and the District of Columbia have filed an antitrust lawsuit targeting Google's app store, arguing that Google maintains a monopoly for distributing apps for the Android operating system. I'm not a lawyer. But this is one of those situations where I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing where the harm is for consumers. I get that if you're in the business of creating apps, you know, if you're an app developer, maybe this isn't the greatest situation. But for consumers like you and me, Asit, I, I don't know. I, I, I would not want to be in the position of having to prove significant consumer harm. It's true, Chris. It's it's sort of hard to see this. I, I I'll put the argument this way. So this comes it's sort of a summation of the argument from the state. So Google Play, the Google Store, has about a ninety percent market share for uh, apps that are on Android devices, and no other store has more than five percent market share. Now, with that fact, you've got this other fact on the side here that Google charges a 30% commission to developers um, on top of some other transaction fees uh, on its store. Now, there's a great argument to be made there that, look, if that pricing power exists, if apps developers are passing on that 30% cost to us as consumers, they might charge that anyway and, and take it all home. So, you, it is always hard to make the argument that the commission fees that Google charges are costing the consumer. If you're a developer and Google doesn't charge those fees and people buy the product at that uh, price, then that 30% is yours. So I see some difficulty there as well. Um, however, this is you know a big target uh, that is on Google and Apple is, is right there beside it. I want to read something from William White, who's the Senior Director of Public Policy at Google. He said, uh, this was in an interview yesterday, I believe, or, or blog post. Android and Google Play provide openness and choice that other platforms simply don't. So this is firing a little shot at Apple. What that means is that you can circumvent the Google Play Store if you want. There are ways to get apps onto your Android device without having to go through the Google Play Store. Not so with Apple's iOS system. You've basically got to go through Apple's App Store to get apps on the Apple device. But you know, both companies 
are charging these commissions to developers, and both are in the crosshairs of uh, some regulation coming up. So I think it's par for the course for these two dominant players in the app ecosystems. And I guess to the point of these uh, 34, 36 odd states that have brought the suit, there is no third uh, app store out there of any size. I mean, it's basically two really big fish that are, are fighting it out in real time. So we continue to watch what happens on these fronts. I, I love it when, the, you know, the big companies just take shots at each other. You <laughs> know. know, like Alphabet <laughs> is not a behemoth on its own. And they're, you know, and part of their response is like, hey, look at them. Don't, do, what, are you, what are you coming after us for? Look at Apple. At least we're not Apple. Yeah, I, I love the little petty pot shots. It, it brings some color into what are otherwise dry proceedings. <laughs> a reminder, because I haven't mentioned this in a while, if you're ever looking for more stock ideas and recommendations, you can. if you're not already a member of our stock advisor service, you can check it out. You get stock recommendations every month. You get Best Buys now. You get You get a lot. And you get 50% off just by being one of the dozens of listeners when you go to stockideas.fool.com. That's stockideas.fool.com. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Got an email from George Rigatero, whose last name I'm almost certainly mispronouncing, so I'm sorry about that, George. He writes, do you take into account the composition of your funds when you're looking at individual stocks? Like many fools, I have the big tech names in my portfolio, but if you start to dig into S&P 500 ETFs or even the Fool 100 index, you already have a large concentration in these companies. As someone uh, with a 401k that does not allow individual stocks and a poor fund selection, I have a large chunk in the standard index ETFs. Just wondering how much you look into the composition of your ETFs uh, in your portfolio when looking at concentration. It's a great question, Asit. I have to say, I just personally, I've got you know the, my first big investment was an S and P five hundred index fund, um, and I I think I compartmentalize sort of how I think about that versus the fact that I own you know companies like Amazon. You know, a lot of the companies I own uh, shares of are in the S and P five hundred index fund, and that's like I don't look at it as like, oh, I'm overweighted in that sense. I've got my stocks, and then I've got my S&P 500 index fund. Yeah, it's, I think it's a healthy way to think about it, Chris, to compartmentalize a little bit, because you want to develop your skills as, as someone who can pick great stocks and be able to hold them. And a lot of times, you'll find, if you play this game long enough, a confluence behind uh, companies you really like and companies the rest of the market really, really likes as well. So you'll find some doubling up of positions. So it's healthy to compartmentalize so you don't keep yourself from participating and, and getting a bit more concentration in a stock like Amazon.com, which hopefully will continue to pay off for you over the long term. You know, to George's point, it, it's, it is a great point. Uh, we know that a handful of stocks, handful of mega tech stocks, make up about 40% of the S&P's market capitalization. So, what is an investor to do who's seeking some diversification and trying to avoid specific stock risk by investing in the market, only to find that these handful of stocks can propel the market on any given day and over the longer term? 
Well, one of the things that you can do if you're really worried about this is look for ETFs that have exactly the same S&P composition, but instead of being capitalization weighted, they are equal weighted. So there are a few equal weighted ETFs uh, out there that an investor can look at. As for our own um, full 100 ETF, I should point out that that has a bit of a deceiving construction. We select the stocks on the, the full side, Motley Fool subscription services side, based on our conviction. But we can't really run that. That's the other arm of the business. That's the asset management side. And then on their side, they have to go with uh, market-weighted capitalizations as well. So even though we pick according to um, our conviction, that's an aggregate of, of our analyst team, our, our convictions on all these stocks, once it hits an ETF product, it also becomes capitalization weighted. And so to George's point, you know, you, you get some big names that are driving a lot of the change. Uh, I would say the other thing an investor can do is remember there are mid-cap uh, ETFs that you can participate in. There are international ETFs. There's a whole world of ETFs that can give you a little bit of diversification. I know it sounds ironic to say this. <laughs> outside of the S&P 500 index, which is supposed to be your diversification vehicle. No, that's true. But it's, it's, um, it is one of those parts of the investing world that, that doesn't get as much attention as individual companies do. And that, and that makes sense to me just from a, you know, from a business media standpoint. But it, it's a great point that a good way to diversify, if you're looking for like, okay, I'm looking for not individual stocks, particularly for, on the international level. If you're just like, okay, you know, how can I take a basket approach to a region of the world, um, but I don't want to pick individual stocks myself? And you can do that, by the way. I mean, you can you can go the Jason Moser route of I'm gonna I'm gonna find four stocks in this category, and that's going to be my basket. But the, you know, you can also go the ETF route. Yeah, I think it's. Uh a really fun way, in fact, to learn about uh, other parts of the world that are emerging uh, in in terms of investment viability, and also some mature markets that we you know often overlook in our own backyard. You could look for a a large cap stock which has an industrial focus, so that might leave out a lot of tech stocks. So ETFs give you that ability to to play around, to diversify, to learn. And I agree with you, Chris, they're overlooked. Um, and in some ways, they also are a great fund of ideas. One of the best things you can do as an investor who is both diversifying through ETFs and picking your own stocks is to pour through the list of the holdings of every ETF you buy and look at those top 10 or top 50 holdings. That can generate some very interesting ideas. And many of the times, many has been the time that I've looked down one of these holdings lists and third or fourth, fifth biggest holding in X ETF is a stock I've never thought about owning for myself. And I do some research and a light bulb goes off. Why, why don't I own the security on the side here? So I think there can be a, a healthy symbiosis between the stocks we're picking that we just really love and want to have in our portfolio and those ETFs, which give us a little bit more comfort, ability to sleep at night, um, and, and provide some ballast in our portfolios. 
Got to watch the fees, though. You always want to make sure you know what the fees are, although that's another trend that has, you know, in the same way that all these different brokerages over the past 20 years kept lowering their fees until finally they were like, the hell with it. You know, we're not going to charge people for trading stocks at all. Uh, we've, we've seen the same thing happen with uh, mutual fund fees and ETFs. Chris, you and I are both of a certain age. So I'll say no more than that. But you remember those net asset value fees uh, used to be assessed. This is back in the days when everyone was buying mutual funds, the closed end funds that would charge you on a sliding scale five percent if you tried to get out in the first year, and then you had the management fees as well. So the industry has come a long, long way in the investors' favor. No excuse not to look into ETFs. Um, for the most part, the fees are very reasonable these days. We have to give Vanguard, of course, a lot of credit for driving that over the years. My favorite, of course, is the 12B1 fee. You know, and of course, it's it's like, oh, it's a alphanumeric, you know, name. And it's like, well, what is that? It's like, oh, that's the fee we charge, and we take the money from that fee, and it goes towards marketing this fund. Like, oh, okay, I'm paying you to market this fund to someone else? Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> One that, until it was explained to you, looked so legit just by that mysteriousness. Yeah. It, it looked so be... official. It's like, yeah. oh, a quarter percent going to the 12B1, whatever that is. <laughs> it had to be something very legit, right? Something that had to do with securities law or the mechanics of operating the fund or some esoteric part. Of, of investing that you're paying for some expertise there. You're paying for marketing expertise, but that's how the world works. Asachara, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Always fun. Thank you, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about in The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. Monday.